sounds good. No, Kevin, you're very welcome to Ireland, and uh, on behalf of everyone, I'd say congratulations on that fantastic piece of Thank you very much. It's very good. I'm glad there are enough people in Dublin who aren't football fans, or aren't England football fans, <laughs> anyway. But I do see they've just gone 1 0 up. Have they really? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> just in case anyone was interested, I'm not. Yeah, I hear Kirsten McCall song <laughs> in there here at the moment. Um, so I, with, you, with your CV and the films that you've done, you've done you know, documentaries and you've done feature films and you've done music documentaries as well, yeah. of course, on Marley. So what was the attraction of this? Was Whitney somebody, somebody on your horizon that you wanted to get involved with or how did it come into your the, world? The opposite of that. When I was first approached about this, I, I was, to say I was disinterested would be wrong, actually. I was like, what, uh, no, I don't really want to make a film about Whitney Houston. What is there to say about Whitney Houston? But I was then persuaded to meet with Whitney's uh, agent, longtime agent, a woman called Nicole David. And she said to me that I loved Whitney more than any other client I ever had. And she, she's the person who discovered Brad Pitt, so that's saying quite a lot. And, uh, and I, I loved it, but I never understood her at all. And I don't think anyone who knew her really understood her. And I think you should make a film to try and understand her. And there was something about that invitation which I thought that is so intriguing, but also there's a kind of cussed part of me which thought actually trying to make a really interesting film about somebody who people kind of dismiss and who I dismissed myself actually was an interesting challenge, an interesting, an interesting thing to do. So what happens next in a process like that? I mean, because what you're committing to is, I think, did you say over, 70 interviews? Yeah, 75 interviews we did. I mean, basically, it's the whole body work, so the research was really doing the interviews. I, I started off, um, I, I, said, I, I said to the producer, I said, okay, let, uh, there's nothing really very interesting written about Whitney, so it's hard to do much research. I read one book which was written by her mother, which was, which was interesting, and uh, then I said, let's just go out on the road and interview as many people as we can. And that will be both the filming and it will be, okay. and it will be the research. And when you sign up for that or when you decide to do that, are, are you immediately in a position where you can say to the family, you have to let me tell the truth? Or does that come later? How does it work? No, no, that, well, that happened very early on, actually, because I, I've had a, two prior experiences with music documentaries. One was very happy. It was with Marley, where the family sort of said to me, you know, you can you can do what you want. And we shook hands on it the first time we met, and I had the final cut. And there were some things they didn't particularly like, and I softened a couple of things just to be nice to them, but otherwise it was pretty much, you know, what the film that I wanted to say. And the other one was I did a film years ago about Mick Jagger, which was a total disaster because um, he didn't like what I did. He took the film over, and he recut it, and it was a total mess. And I just swore I'd never go through that again because it was just humiliating and awful. And, and so I said to the family when I met them the first time, I said, look, we need your blessing and your, your permission to use the music and, and the archive, but I think it's in both of our interests if, 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 if this is my film, you know, not your film, because you're going to be seen to be tainted in some way. People are going to think that you're going to want to soft pedal everything that you're going to that you're going to lie uh, whereas if I do the film I can hopefully make a film which really humanizes Whitney and makes people fall in love with her again because I think they've fallen out of love with her 
and they understood that. I mean, they, out of their own self-interest, I think. Right. Uh, but then, what an interesting thing that happened was that, you know, they, they, to begin with, they weren't very forthcoming. They were very, they were very closed, and just gave me the sort of cliched kind of responses to things. And then I interviewed them all several times, and by the end of it, they were sort of saying to me, "Oh, this is like therapy. This is we're really enjoying this." Um, and it, and I think that they started to really open up because. Maybe subconsciously they'd always known that this was a way to actually um, deal with things that had not been dealt with at the time and to actually liberate themselves in some way from the, the kind of prison that the whole right. family found themselves in. So as you're doing that, I get on to the story of it in a moment, but I'm intrigued how you're going into this kind of curiosity. Yes. But the story that you're going to tell is kind of revealing itself to you, really, is it? And yes, so that's exactly that. I mean, I, I sort of believe that... I think there's an interesting story in almost anybody. And I think that obviously if you have someone who's been a huge star and produced amazing music, the story is all the more amazing. But I didn't I had literally no idea what the story was I was going to tell when I started it. I just started interviewing people and talking to people and seeing where it's where it, where it led. And I have to say it was an incredibly hard film to make because although I as I, say, I think there's a story in everybody Whitney hid herself away so much because I, I started to watch all the interviews that she'd done and they were so um, rote, so, so by the numbers all the time. She never really gave anything away in her interviews. And she didn't write her own songs for the most part. Yeah, of course. So you, you don't have, like in the Amy documentary, you've got this thing with the life and the art sort of bounce off each other. In this, you don't have that. And you don't have a way to get inside her except for other people talking about her and the shards of information you get from bits of home movie footage. And so um, it's, a, it's a real investi investigation. Mm -hmm. it, became, it becomes like a piece of investigative journalism. You, you've <coughs> split the film into kind of two sections, really. The, the first half is very joyous. It's very mm -hmm. much her, her talent. Yeah. The second half is the darker side of it. Mm -hmm. But when you got access to the home footage and you were seeing, for instance, the film of her singing at a church, um, yeah. she's really young. Yeah. What was your, were you starting to think, wow, what's going on here? Or, or where did that talent come from? Right? Well, you know, the, 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 actually the thing that convinced me that there was a, that there was a great film to be made was... Uh, Coincidentally, to the time I was considering whether to make the film, there was an, an article published in the New Yorker magazine called Whitney Houston Songs of Freedom. And it, it had uh, this writer who'd known Whitney vaguely, but not, not really. And he appears briefly in the film talking about the Star Spangled Banner. And that was what the article was about. It was about how Whitney had, as it says in the film, taken this the, the, the national anthem and kind of revolutionized not just the way it was performed but the meaning of that song and I thought that was so remarkable as such an amazing achievement that I felt like you know, she, she had a, a genius and then at that point I started to listen to the music and listen to it you know more in a different way than, than than you would as a casual listener you know listening to the same things over and over again and I found that some of the songs made me cry and I thought, this is really weird. I, I, you know, I'm not necessarily a person who cries. I cry easily at movies, actually, but I never cry at music. And I think this, I began to realize there's some power to her voice that is maybe not unique, mm -hmm. but is really rare, which is a power to 
directly emotionally communicate something to that is not to do with the words. Right. It's to do with something to something in in the sound of her voice and the and the and the dexterity of her voice or something. Did you get any sense of where that came from? Because I was looking at it. I heard sixteen. She has all these little mannerisms. She flicks yeah. her face and. But she has that at 15 or 16, and you're going, God, it's like watching Messi playing football when he's 12. It's just, yes. you can't be this good already. So yes. I mean, the, the, her mother was a singer. The dad seemed to keep to himself. He, he <laughs> provided for his family. The, the, the music that was coming from her. What, the music was, was all coming from the mum, yeah. I mean, the mum is the huge figure in her life, and I think it's a bit like the, sort of Michael Jackson's father or something. She was super yeah. ambitious for her mum and uh, super ambitious for her daughter. Um, I mean, there's, I think... My favourite bit in the film is the bit of home movie footage that Robin Crawford shot of Whitney and her mother in the dressing room in around 1990 or 89 or something. And the whole, everything in the movie is sort of encapsulated in that one sort of two minute scene. And uh, the moment where her mother says to her, you know, God laid his hands on you, don't worry. You know, your talent comes from God. And you see Whitney sort of relax and calm down, and she really believes that. Mm. She really thinks everything's going to be all right in the end because God's going to save me. But also, this talent I have, it comes from God. So, who gives a fuck about yeah. Janet Jackson? You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's true. It, it's just it's trying to go with that nature and nurture thing, and it's very hard to see in her case. It is very hard to see, and I mean, and I think it is, I think it is. It's like it is like people who just have that. Whatever the t- you know, for playing chess, for playing tennis, for playing where somebody who just you know picks up a racket and suddenly the yeah. you know second lesson they're bloody good. There's something a beyond normal you know normal nature nurture thing. And then also with her family in the background, it's not that bad family really. I mean, talk about the dark stuff that happens to her a bit later. But yes. just looking at her family, your dad is saying kind of a normalist job. He's providing for his family, doing yes. well really. Yes. His mother has her musical career. Yes. Kids are in and out of stuff in, in school, but kind of saying nothing worse than an awful lot of people are kind of in and out of. Absolutely, except that I think the 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 the, the racial element of it. I okay. think that is the thing that was. You know, underlies so much of her life story, and 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 I think surprised me in a way. A lot of things surprised me about the way that Whitney felt like a bit of an outcast in her neighborhood. She was bullied at school for being light-skinned, for being, um, you know, for dressing too prettily, dressing in a way that was too white. I think, and then that obviously later on you have Al Sharpton, who is such a hypocrite. You know, <laughs> Al Sharpton saying, "Oh, you know, you're." Whitey Houston and you're selling out and you're whatever. And I say he's a hypocrite because at the end of the film you see him on CNN or you hear him on CNN saying, you know, it's a terrible tragedy. I hope the press lay off her now that she's dead. And you're thinking, well, you, <laughs> you were worse than any of them. But um, I think that she was very confused about her racial identity. I think that yeah. you know she was she, she she it wasn't it wasn't simple for her and. Um, the fact that she was one of the few black stars in the sort of MTV mm. generation who, who made it big, who was on MTV on rotation and whatever, I, I think made black American audiences, you know, yeah. be suspicious of her. But at the same time, there she is doing the bodyguard, doing this, I think, what was a kind of revolutionary thing at the time. You know, she's, she's, she's appearing in a film where race is never mentioned and where she, it's a love story between um, you know, a white man and a black woman, and 
even today, that would be yeah. kind of notable. It but would. back back then, with the with, and it's easy to forget that Kevin Costner was the biggest star in the world at that time. He'd just come off winning Best Director Oscar as well for Dance with Wolves. You know, he was he was absolutely massive, bigger than bigger than anybody at the moment. Um, and so that was a huge, huge mm-hmm. moment. And then the, that with the Star Spangled Banner, her that, social impact. That changes huge. everything. But before you, it gets to that, she, she's already becoming very, very, very successful. And there's the hit back of the lesbianism yeah. and the, the you know, whiter than white stuff. Yeah. Her. So she's experiencing a bit of being famous and the backlash yes. that comes with it. Bobby comes into the picture around that. Yeah. He doesn't seem to come out of that as badly as I kind of expect, or a lot of people expect. He doesn't seem to be the demon no, he's not a demon. I don't think he is a demon. I'm, when I met him, I thought, you're just quite a, a pathetic person. You know, you're a little bit sad, actually. He's in, very insecure. He's kind of fronting up the whole time in a way, like somebody who knows that they're not really <laughs> tough, but pretending to be tough. Mm. And um, I think, you know, you've made clear in the film that he's not the one who introduced her drugs. He's not the one who caused the problems. Mm. It all comes from Whitney's own psyche and her own yeah. choices and I think to me the you know as you say her experiences in childhood are not necessarily that unusual except for perhaps the the, the abuse um, but I think she had this obsession with um, uh, with marriage which sounds weird, this sort of very anti-feminist kind of idea that some of marriage was going to rescue her and I think what that's about is that when she was bullied at school and she had no friends and she was abused, but she couldn't tell her parents, the safe place, the only safe place was at home. It was with her brothers and with her parents. And in her head, that was kind of you know the fairy castle. And so for a few years, she felt safe. And then her mother has an affair with the pastor of the church, or the church, which she also, you know, could feel safe in. Suddenly the home and the church is blown mm-hmm. up and she's, she's lost. And for the rest of her life, she's looking back at that period and thinking, that, that's when I felt safe. I wanted to reproduce that. So she, that's why she wanted to have um, a happy marriage with Bobby. Right. And she hung on to that marriage for dear life. Um, even though most people, 99% of people would have thought, this is ridiculous, he's an, he's an idiot. Why am I right him? He's a talentless idiot. Um, but but um, hopefully Bobby doesn't have any friends here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't uh, want to say. Has he moved to Dublin recently? Another, another thing, her talent is one thing that, that's, that's gloomy, uh, gloomy and filled with. Fame itself is another thing. Mm. And the bodyguard and the star spangled banner together mm seem to take her to an area that very, very few people get to. Even he, his fame is nothing by comparison yeah. to what she is after that. That, that. that moment she becomes this you know, global superstar who you know, is huge, huge not just in the kind of anglophone world, but huge in Africa, huge in Asia. I mean, in the film, I sort of showed it humorously, you know, where that clip from sort of suburban England somewhere with somebody being arrested and put in jail amazingly for seven days for playing her song too many times. Um, and with this Osama, Osama, Osama Saddam Hussein, although there were actually the, 
there was a, there was an Osama bin Laden connection, which I don't know, which I had in an earlier cut, but it was just all too long, and I had to take that. But yeah, there's the, the Osama bin Laden's uh, one of his wives revealed in the 2000s when she was picked up by the, C, by the CIA and, and, and questioned that Osama bin Laden had an obsession with Whitney Houston and uh, was planning or idly thinking about and talking to this wife about uh, sending an assassination squad to America to kill Bobby Brown. <laughs> and, and this is true, and kidnap Whitney and bring her back. At that time, I think he was living in Sudan. Yeah. Um, so that just, again, it shows you. I always remember an interview that um, Elvis Presley, I think we were saying that his fame became so great that it was the issue. There, was, there, was no, there wasn't another Elvis on earth that he could talk to. He was this unique yes. individual. There, there was nothing like him. She yeah. was almost there, wasn't she? Was I think she was. Elvis. I mean, I think it's one of the things that really fascinates me, which the film doesn't really touch on, but th this idea that the three great African-American stars of that era, and pretty much the three biggest stars, excepting Madonna, who's probably as big as they were, but Michael Jackson, Prince, Whitney, of that 80s, early 90s period, all three of them ended in remarkably similar ways. They both mm -hmm. all ended up dying young, with drugs involved, very isolated, living in a sort of fantasy world. And I kind of think, what is that? What is that about? Why yeah. did th why did that happen? And I think it's, I mean, it's complicated, and I don't know the answer. But I think a small part of it, at least, is the fact that they they didn't feel like they had peers. They didn't know what to do with their with their enormous fame. Um, and then around them, um, you see her when she comes off stage, and people are wrapping her in towels. And yeah. There's nothing else they can do, really, is there? It's she's she's the show. She's the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the show. Yes. The others are just really ancillary around her. So. Yes. Um, so when she starts to develop major problems, and you saw yes. the TV interview in particular, yes. which is bringing the starkness of her drug addictions home, yeah. they're, they're really in a very enfeebled position, aren't they, to do anything? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the questions I constantly was asking myself, you know, why didn't anyone intervene? Yeah. And, the, the, you know, the simple answer is that she was the boss. And as kind of um, uncertain and unsure of herself as she was in many ways, she also did act the boss. She was the person who who hired and fired people. So it's very hard to go to your boss and say, you know what, you know, we need to not tour next year because you need to go into rehab for six mm -hmm. months. Um, and it's and and if your father particularly is, you know, saying, you know, we need to make money while we can, which is with his attitude. It's even it's it's even harder. I mean, there was a very there was a heartbreaking story actually I heard just last week when I was in New York and we had a screening for some of the family and for some of the people who were in the film, and a woman called um, Lynn Volkman, who um, is in the film, she was Whitney's publicist, and she was sort of amazing when I interviewed her. She cried because she sort of said, you know, I've spent 25 years lying about Whitney and now I get to tell the truth. You know, lying, telling people. You know, no, Robin Crawford and her never had a relationship. No, they were not, you know, she doesn't take drugs. But she said to me, I, she didn't say in the interview, but she said, um, 
I had a heroin addiction, she said, when I was working for Whitney, I was working for John Houston, the father. And um, it became really, really bad. And John Houston was so nice to me. He said, I'm going to send you to rehab and I'm going to pay for it. And so he sent this woman for two months to rehab and she recovered and been clean since, mm. but never did the same thing for his daughter. And I, I, when I heard that, I was like, oh my God. That's remarkable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, it really is. Uh, yeah. I know so, so she was like, oh, I think you're a bit mean about John, because I really love him because he saved my life, she said. So, I mean, it's, it just shows how co complex this, you know, the story is. It's just like, you can't, nobody's a, nobody's a villain, you know. Yeah. I, Everyone I, I, has I, their I'm, reasons. I'm knocked back on my heels. I got my head around it. I think that, because even the scene with um, the mother of Sissy, isn't it, uh, together, while she's talking about her talent, you can still see the daughter-mother bond. But with the dad, um, it's hard to see that still existing at all. He, he's... He's kind of picking. He's a, he's a mafia, minor mafiosi, you know. He's yeah, kind uh, of like that's how he feels like, you know. So when he does that home movie shot, him coming into the dressing room, and he's kind of a, the gold yeah. chain. He's a changed man. I mean, people, yes. people often say, "I didn't change, you did." And he's yes. a fantastic example of he's definitely changed, definitely. <laughs> yes. um, it just you know, why didn't someone stop them? If it's not family, then who is it going to be? And she's kind of implying her family, isn't she? So yes, they're taken out of that loop. Um, well, they were all so dysfunctional that they couldn't do anything about it. I mean, I think that's the truth. They're all affected by some of the same issues. And I think, for me, the key moment in the film really is early on when the brother says, you know, we were a family with a lot of secrets, and when you don't talk about your secrets, they never, ever go away. And I think it's a kind of, they were eaten up by all these secrets. And funnily enough, again, in New York last week, at that same screening, a lot of the family, the brothers and sisters-in-law and nieces and nephews were, were there. And, I sort of saw them all gathered around chatting, and I thought, God, I wonder what they're saying. And I, I went over to talk to them. And actually, what they were talking about was, they were saying, in the, in the African-American community, there's a real taboo about therapy. And people don't go into therapy. They don't, they don't use sort of psych, psychoanalytic um, uh, uh, concepts, even. And uh, they said, this film, ought to be an advertisement for therapy in the African-American community, you know, that, that, that actually therapy is what could have saved them all. Because the thing, that's the thing is that the, the two brothers are still addicts, and uh, which I, I, I think is obvious in the film, but um, they are still living with all the same stuff. So for them, making the film actually has been a real release and uh, they, it was very moving actually, giving them on, they were on American TV last week talking about it and they were saying how, you know, they hadn't enjoyed making the film, but now they really feel like it's done something for how them. How did they feel about seeing her daughter on screen? Because that's, um, that's particularly hard. Yeah, it's really upsetting. I mean, that's the thing that, that's the one thing that I, when I was making the film, I really struggled to, you have to like the person you're making a film, but yeah. otherwise it's impossible. And I have to say, I find it hard to like her when you contemplate that aspect of it. You know, you can forgive someone so much for because of what she went through in her family, and you can forgive a lot. But when you become a parent, you become responsible. I think, and so it's hard to see that and think, you know, how could you be such a bad parent? She's like a prop at times. Yeah. 
brought on stage and, and yeah. they're touching scenes. Um, yeah. She's really yeah, the daughter dismissed is the, afterwards. Yeah, the daughter, I mean, that's, that's the sort of whole, you can just see it in the images of her. The daughter gets older and you can see her going from being this beautiful, thing. beautiful happy little child to being somebody who's so insecure and so unhappy. Um, when, at what point during it did the, the abuse start to become clear that it existed and that it was known within the family? Well, um, very late on. Um, I, I, I began to think that, that something like that happened. I thought there was some trauma in her because that would explain why she behaved in the way she behaved, I think. And uh, I didn't know what it was. I suspected it might be, it might be you know, sexual molestation, but I didn't know. And um, it was when I, quite late on, the last time I interviewed the brother Gary, he, I was asked, talking to him about his own addiction and you know, what were the origins of that and why did he feel that he'd been unable to, you know, through rehabs, to be able to, to, to you know, stop it. And he, as you see in the film, said, oh, well, you know, I had this recurring image of, of uh, um, when I was abused as a child by this female relative and I was completely thrown. I didn't, you know, I had no idea about that. And then, and then I said to him, well, was the same thing true of Whitney? And he said, I don't know. But I, sus I felt that he suspected the same thing was true, but he didn't want to say it. And then uh, I spoke to his wife just straight after that, and she said, yes, Whitney told me about it. I mean, the amazing thing was that I, this was after a year of talking to them, and it finally came out. Um, and then the person who really knew about it was Mary Jones, the assistant, and that she finally said, once the, once the brother and sister-in-law had spoken about it, she said, okay, I want to talk about this now because actually I've been I haven't talked about it because I didn't want to disrespect the family because the, if they didn't want to discuss it. And, uh, but now that they've brought it up, I want to talk about it. And she came and she said, I've spoken to her a lot, a lot about this. And again, what's in, what's in the film? So from the sort of journey that the audience go on in the film is exactly the journey I went on of sort of like not quite understanding mm. this woman and then feeling like there's a moment where you think, oh, that makes a lot of pieces fall into place in, underst in understanding her. Uh, it's funny that I was watching it uh, with my wife and it was literally at that moment where we were going, lots of people have that similar experience, not yeah. fame, but, yeah. and then there must be something else. That's exactly when the abuse yeah. came yeah. in and then you're going, oh God. She had an awful lot on her plate. Um, but in all of that, um, the performances were just still off the clock. Um, even at the height of, of the drug addiction, she seemed to be able to go on stage and mm. just nail Well, songs. I think there's that amazing, amazing sequence we've done as a montage of um, her singing in, uh, in the name of the Lord. I can't remember the name of the song, actually. It's got in my head, it's a gospel, a gospel standard that she's singing and she's sweating and she's looking sort of in pain, sort of three quarters of the way through, two thirds of the way through the film. And it's a kind of almost a painful song. It's painful to watch her performance of that. But at the same time, it's astonishing. And, it's, and it has that um, direct emotional communication to the audience. And so that's like 98 to 99 when she's doing that, which is really the height of when, when, when she's just in another world of, yeah. of drugs. Incredible gift. Incredible gift. Yeah. Um, Kevin, I'm going to see if anyone would like to ask any questions at this point. It's an amazing film. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Um, I wondered if she, if Robin was ever reconciled, and if you also tried to, I mean, I'm sure you probably tried to reach her. Could you speak about that? Did she ever speak to you? Yes. Uh, um, well, Robin, Robin um, was obviously one of the first people I reached out to. Yeah. She said to me that um, she would vowed never to do a documentary about Whitney, and but then she said. Um, I like some of your other work, and I'm, maybe this is the time, maybe I should do it. And so she went back and forth for several months, for like eight months. She said, I might do it, I'm not sure. And then in the end, she said, no, I don't want to do it. And uh, so I was left sort of trying to piece their relationship together and trying to understand it from what other people said. I also found I wasn't able to use them in the film, but I was shown a cache of letters and love notes between the two of them that somebody had which made me able to sort of pinpoint a little bit better where, you know, when the relationship was happening and when it ended, uh, um, which I think was, you know, they, they started their relationship when they moved in together in like around eight, 1980, 81, and it ended um, around the time that Whitney became famous, you know, 84, 85, and it feels like what happened, and again, I don't know for sure, but just from talking to people and from these few few records I saw, it feels like what happened was that um, Robin said to her, look, we shouldn't continue this because, you know, it's going to be really hard for you in your career if we do. And uh, she, you know, and Whitney also, I think, was ambivalent about the relationship anyway, it seems. So Whitney went on, she had relationships with men, she had obviously fell in love with Bobby, they married, but Robin, you know, always was there as her friend trying to look after her. And they had this, I think it's always even more touching than, I think the, tr the, 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 the kind of cliched narrative is, you know, Whitney was gay and she was forced by the record industry and her family, you know, to marry Bobby. I think that's baloney. She, she loved Bobby as much as she loved Robin, I think, and she loved other people as well. I think... What is more touching, though, is that I think Robin and Whitney were um, best, best friends. And they made this kind of, one of, one of her, their close friends who wouldn't appear on camera spoke to me about it and said, um, they sort of made a vow together that, you know, we're going to take the world on together and I'm going to be your manager and you're going to be the star and we're going to you know, go through life together. And then, of course, the family get in the way, Bobby gets in the way, everything and sort of tears them apart. So I think it's a story about deep, deep friendship. Yeah. Um, any more? Yeah, let's go ahead. Um, just, you kind of touched on this, that you were sort of maybe not quite indifferent, and then initially kind of fascinated by her talent, and maybe being less sympathetic towards her yes. daughter. I'm just wondering about the sort of emotional involvement, especially when you're talking to her family, and they're maybe revealing things that they haven't do you find it difficult to remain sort of objective? Or do you I think, think it's this. Level of no, it's very hard to remain objective. Yeah, no, it's very hard to remain because I feel like I know her really well, but I've never met her. I mean, it's bizarre. And also because I thought that I thought that this would be a relatively straightforward film to do because I because the family were involved because I thought there must be lots of great material with her interviews where she talks about it. You know. And actually, the more I went into it, I thought there's, there's hardly any interviews with her where she reveals herself in any way. Um, there's, and the family were very close. I've never come across, as I say, I interviewed 75 people, only about 30 of them are in the film, 
most of the rest of those people are people who just didn't didn't want to talk openly. They sort of agree to do an interview, but then they just give you the same old fluff. And so actually, it turned to this, and that was what f fascinating actually in a way is that you know what what people think is the most poppy, silly subject actually is the hardest <laughs> thing to find the truth about. You know, I've made films about you know political things and more sort of serious stuff. And actually, this was by far the hardest in terms of actually drilling down. And I don't feel like I got everything either. And, and not to mention that there are lots of things that aren't in the film, which I, which I found out just because there just wasn't, there wasn't room. When you were making something like with your like Marley, do you have where you start, a start, middle, and end in your mind of where this is going to go? Or None at all. No, I just have a feeling that there's something interesting. And then, and I think in both of them it's a similar thing. It's like, here's someone who we have an image of, but that image doesn't quite make sense. It's not quite a human being that you're seeing there. So what, who, who was the human being? So that, in both those instances, that's, that was my starting point. But in a way, they were different because Marley, I always, you know, I, I had always loved reggae and loved him particularly. And so it was a great kind of like feeling of, of getting to spend time with someone you already love. With Whitney, it was kind of the opposite. I fell in love with her as I, as I made the film. Maybe more interesting. See over here, the left. There's lots of things, lots of things, and uh, and and it's already a very long film, <laughs> and so and, and uh, there were things that were quite painful to get rid of. Um, I had a whole section about people talking about Whitney's voice and why it was so powerful, which just didn't have it. It didn't feel like it ever belonged. I had a section about her death and about the stories around because there's a whole conspiracy industry about you know was she murdered was she. And so I went into that, and based on basically the fact that Mary Jones, the same woman who talks about the abuse, was the woman who found Whitney's body. And she said to me, when I went into that room and found her body, um, there was like six inches of water in the floor throughout the room. And, but when I went into the, into the bathroom, the taps were off, and Whitney was floating in a, in a bath that was full to the brim. And so she said, who turned the taps off? And I was like, oh, yeah, that, what, that's interesting. And I, so I interviewed everybody I could who had been there, the brother who was there, obviously. The, the, there was a dr sort of drug dealer guy who I met who, who, who was there at that time. There was various other people, a, a makeup person. And they all none of their stories matched. So there was definitely something fishy went on, but I could never figure out what it was. I don't think anyone, I'm pretty convinced that there's no foul play, but I think what happened was that somebody gave her, somebody brought drugs up to her. She sent her assistant out, go and get me a cupcake. <laughs> um, and the assistant went out and then somebody arrived with the drugs and she took the drugs in the bath, she collapsed and drowned but as the water was flowing out there was somebody else in the in the room and they saw that the water was flowing out they went in they saw her they panicked 
because they had given her the drugs, presumably, and they switched the taps off and they left. So that's my, my best guess from what I learned of what actually happened. So um, <laughs> I had a 20-minute section Wow. about it and it was so complicated and didn't come to any conclusion there was no, I couldn't say oh, it was him or it was him so I had to leave it out have we time for one more one more yeah this gentleman at the front given, given her importance uh, why is there so little interviews with Sissy good question um, because I did do an interview with her, as with all the others, in a, you know, against a kind of neutral backdrop, a photographic backdrop like everyone else. Um, but she was really not a good interviewee. It was very, she could, she, her memory had gone. Um, and yeah, she just wasn't interesting. And so, um, on the same day that I did that interview, I took her to the church, and I was just going to do a shot of her walking in and out. And, and then she sat down and she started talking, and suddenly she was focused, and somehow being in that place made her you know, come alive in a way that she hadn't been in the morning. And so I used that material. Uh, and in fact, I did use to end the film with her in the church, but uh, it, in the last minute, I changed it and actually made it about this, you know, Whitney coming home to that and, and, and that funeral sequence. Um, so yeah, that's that's the reason. I think she's. I probably didn't push her as much as I did other people because I felt really so sorry for her, and I think that she, um, you know, she's suffering a little bit from dementia now, and it just felt like that was cruelty upon cruelty to, to talk to her or somebody who is so much obviously in, in pain. Yeah. But yeah, it, I agree with you. It'd be nice to have more from that. <laughs> yeah, I think this, we need this film starting here in just a few minutes' time. So, uh, Kevin, again, on behalf of everyone, thanks very much. Thank you very much.